The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Good afternoon. Welcome to Barron's Live. My name is Gregory Robb. I am the economics editor at MarketWatch, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Carl Tannenbaum, chief economist at Northern Trust, Chicago. Uh, we're going to discuss the Fed. Carl has been at Northern Trust since 2012, and he worked at the Fed after the financial crisis and prior to that was chief economist at LaSalle Bank. So, Carl, thanks for joining us. Today. Great to be with you, Greg. Looking forward to the chat. So, I mean, I want our discussion to be the Fed has already started their two-day meeting, started at 10 o'clock this morning. So I just kind of wanted to look through the the data and look through what the Fed is thinking about and talking about what they're probably talking about, kind of having a sort of informal FOMC meeting of our own, um, kind of hopefully we can go through the waterfront and take a lot of questions from viewers. So I feel thanks. I feel empowered. This is great. Yeah, you get a vote. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, let's get started. Um, I definitely want to leave plenty of time for questions, too. So people put them in the live chat, try to get to them. So, Carl, I think the biggest, you know, maybe I would say the elephant in the room is the banking situation. Um, so let's talk there. What's the what do you think as the Fed, you know, meets? We had First Republic Bank getting taken over. There's a lot of concern about a credit crunch. So what's your let's start there. What's your view as as the way things are now? Well, first, it's nice to have First Republic uh, behind us. That had been lingering for a couple of months. I, I had suspected that it wouldn't last the weekend given the deposit outflows, which were substantial. Let me just say, everybody, that no uh, bank, no matter how well managed, can survive the loss of half of its deposits, uh, which can move simply because of rumor and as we're learning, uh, because rumor travels faster than fact in general and even faster on social media, the time window that firms have uh, to survive is really very short. Mobile payments play a role in that. So hopefully that situation is stabilized. I cannot rule out that there won't be further brush fires. Uh, even today, some headlines of some smaller institutions that are, are matters of concern. The root cause, Greg, as you know, is that interest rates have gone up relatively quickly. Banks for the last 40 years have managed their risk to rising interest rates reasonably carefully, uh, but the speed with which this has occurred and the extent may have come as a surprise to some asset liability committees. And while usually not fatal, in concentrated doses, this can be enough to cause trouble uh, at institutions. The other thing that I think the Fed is carefully trying to manage is psychology, which becomes a huge part of financial contagion. Uh, human beings do not exactly subject uh, these situations to a lot of rigorous calculation. They just want safety. They want out. It's risk off. And some of the stories that came out about SVB are illustrative of this. So I do think even though the headlines have died down a little bit, this will be something discussed at the FOMC. 
That said, two things. Banking problems are best addressed with macroprudential policy like supervision and not with interest rates. Two, in terms of the impact on credit, the lending standards in the United States were getting quite tight as of the February Fed Senior Loan Officer Survey, and demand for loans was modest at best. So the increment of what may have happened in the wake of SVB signature and First Republic could be relatively small. I would add that about 70% of the credit used by private sector actors in the United States, these are households and businesses, comes from the markets. Uh, corporations issuing directly into the bond markets and then the securitization of consumer credit like mortgages, credit cards, et cetera, mean that it's broader financial conditions, credit spreads, market volatility, are a much bigger determinant of any kind of credit crunch. And there, credit conditions, uh, financial conditions broadly stated, Greg, are back on the easy side of neutral after a four week long decline in credit spreads and market volatility. So I think where you balance it all out is it's something that bears watching. But my view is that it may not be the impactful um, factor in uh, growth for the balance of the year that some others might think. I guess part of the credit, when talking about a credit crunch, it seems almost, of course, monetary policy always seems to be some art and not science, but credit crunches seem to be really more art than science. I mean, it's it's a feel almost. Um, it's it's just not in the data, right? It's just hard to it's hard to picture out. Is that right? I mean, the SLUS report is, you know, not the most uh, I don't know easy to read report that the Fed puts out. Correct, and it's a diffusion index, so it's uh, e it's tighter minus easier, so you don't get a sense of the institution size or how strenuous it is, and it's uh, directional. Uh, it's not absolute. So that if conditions are already tight, then they become slightly easier. They're still tight. You get what I'm saying? Um, it is a feel. I, I think there's a lot of data, though, that say that when bank shares are under pressure and their liquidity is uncertain, clearly they become a little bit more conservative on extending credit. And so it's something to watch. The other thing that has been highlighted is that there are small firms that rely on small banks for a significant amount of financing. And to the degree that smaller banks have been amongst those who have lost uh, the most in terms of deposits over the last uh, eight weeks, the tightening could be very real for uh, smaller firms who, as uh, as many people know, account for about 25% of GDP and 30% of employment. And so that's why uh, we'll be certainly watching the, the job news that's coming out on Friday for any signs uh, that what happened in March was actually carrying over into the, the business outlook. So for now, the banking situation is a worry, but won't have a super impact on the Fed decision in your mind. I don't want to put words in your mind. No, I think it was a significant factor in March, a much more minor factor this time around. Let's talk about the, the market expects, you know, like over 80% chance of a rate hike at this meeting. How does that impact how the Fed officials view this going into the meeting? Um, is that a big factor in their deliberations? The way I've always phrased it, Greg, is there's it's always best if there's congruence between what the market is expecting and what the Fed does. And of course, the Fed tries to steer those expectations with its statements, its forecasts, and a variety of communications channels. 
I think they've done a good job of going from, you know, what was a very low likelihood in the in the depth of the banking problems last month to 80% certainty, where some steering is certainly uh, likely to be needed, is the Fed's last dot chart, anyway, did not reflect any expectation that rates would be reduced from here through the end of 2023. And yet, in the wake of the banking trouble, all of the cuts that were priced into the market in January have come back. A big question for me and for you know those of you who will be at the press conference is, um, how does the Fed try and steer those expectations without causing a, a massive market reversal? The two-year Treasury has come down by an absurd amount uh, in the last uh, six weeks. And so if the Fed comes back out as they did in January and says, you know, don't let's not get hasty about these these cuts. We want to be trebly sure that inflation is under control. Then the potential for reversion in that middle part of the treasury yield curve is is pretty significant, um, and you know investors, some investors may be caught offside by that. And of, the, of course, the Fed is doing quantitative tightening, letting ninety billion dollars a month go off the balance sheet. The Fed wants to continue this in your mind, and for how long? What's your view on quantitative tightening? They'd love to continue it. They'd love, as uh, first Janet Yellen and, and since Jay Powell have said, to have this go on quietly in the background, be like watching grass grow and watching paint dry. Unfortunately, their first effort at this in 2018 had to be ended prematurely because market liquidity dried up a lot faster than they thought. Critical to that calculation or miscalculation, if you want to look at it, is that the Fed needs to understand the demand for reserves in the banking system. Some of those are retained just for liquidity, some for capital purposes. So they don't really know what the neutral level of their balance sheet is. And so as they continue downward, they do have to monitor interactively things like liquidity in the banking system and most importantly in the treasury markets, where there are already signs that the uh, ratio of daily transacting to the size of the market has diminished, that bid-ask spreads for some issues are wider, the difference in yields between securities that are on the run versus off the run have been exaggerated. And of course, with the debt ceiling, which I know we'll get to in a moment, the Fed has to be especially vigilant in its portfolio activities not to add additional risk to situations that are already uncertain. Let's continue then onto the debt ceiling. Would would the debt ceiling, call, if there's 10, would they stop quantitative tightening, do you think? or? Go, go well, um, let me just say that uh, this is a painful subject for me to talk about because this, for me, typifies the, the dysfunction that we have on the fiscal side. And it's a shame that the markets have to bear this. It's a shame that we have an economy that's bearing the risk of uh, a, a technical default and payment priorities. And I think whatever your your political leanings, you would hope for better. And I, I am hoping for better. In any event, the possibility that the Treasury will run out of, uh, of ready cash and have to live hand to mouth means that the latest estimate that I saw would be a reduction across the board in spending of 20%. That means, Greg, that if they hold anything sacrosanct, including interest on treasuries, they'd have to cut other things by more. It's really a very difficult choice. 
Um, I would say that uh, it would certainly through uh, direct impact and psychologically almost assure that we'd have a recession in the middle of the year. But from a market's perspective, I cannot underestimate the damage that would be done uh, by a technical default. It would create all kinds of potential dislocations throughout the financial system where treasuries are widely held and used as collateral. It would cause disruption in corporate bond markets where treasuries are used as benchmarks. It would cause disruption worldwide because treasuries are the benchmark instruments. It would unnecessarily add uh, stress on the dollar, which of course we're trying to maintain as a world reserve currency. Just nothing good would come of it. We've increased the debt ceiling, I think 80 times since it was first established a little over hundred years ago. Evidence that it has a meaningful uh, impact on fiscal discipline is, is sadly not not present. And while certainly every time uh, you know we hear that this this is the time to do it, um, you know the potential cost of of skipping a beat here, Greg, is is something that the Fed uh, certainly would not want to see. I don't think that they would preemptively change their decision this month in expectation of something bad happening. Uh, but I'm sure that he'll get asked about it uh, in the press conference. And as always, when commenting on fiscal or treasury issues, he'll be, Jay Powell will be very guarded in, in his answer. But you must know that there are conversations going on across Washington about contingency planning and knock-on impacts uh, to the banking system and elsewhere that the Fed is at the center of. Uh, just to remind um, listeners to put in the questions in the in the question box and we'll get to them. Now, let's get to the meat of the meeting, the economic outlook. In, in March, the staff put, said that their central forecast, their base case, was a mild recession this year. Has anything over, that was in March. Now, has anything happened over the last six months? What do you think about that uh, forecast? And has anything changed over the last six weeks to make that, uh, to change that outlook, do you think? The, the main delta will be the, the banking stress, which we've already discussed. Um, our own forecast at Northern Trust is a very, very sp a slow period of growth, uh, but no recession. A recession odds are high. Let me just say for long-term investors is a point that I make to our clients, Greg. The difference in a long investment horizon between a couple of quarters that are slightly negative and slightly positive really isn't that, that large. I also think, and we've heard uh, the Fed say that uh, a mild recession is a price worth paying if in fact it does cement uh, that inflation will go back uh, to a desirable range. And so they'll certainly be monitoring that. I suspect the staff will mark up the outlook for uh, financial instability. Also the first quarter, which you know was a mixed bag. I mean, the headline was just over 1% uh, real growth annualized had an inventory correction that was large, could uh, change upon revision. It's consistent with what we saw in the second half of last year. We had just over, I think a two to two and a half percent real growth rate in the second half of last year, which was pretty good considering that we declined in the first half. As I look at other indicators, the ISM numbers globally are, are still in positive territory. Uh, you had a, have a bit of a disconnect, Greg, between the consumption data that was part of the real GDP report and some of the stuff that we see in retail sales. Uh, of course, it's always pointed out that what is measured as consumption by, for GDP is much a much broader range of things than, than the retail sales numbers. Having a lot of discussions internally here about the health of consumers, 
but in general, we see uh, that as not being a constraint. Labor markets are strong. And um, above the bottom, let's say, couple of deciles of income, there are still uh, excess pandemic savings. Last thing I'll mention, and it's an important one, is that a lot of the pandemic supports that have been held over uh, since 2020 are going to end in May. So one of the things we're watching for is the delta for some households that have been covered by Medicare that won't be insured, that may have to resume student debt payments, et cetera. So there's a bit of an inflection point that I'm sure that the staff will want to alert uh, the governors to as they consider the outlook. And now inflation, what's the late, uh, coming down, but sticky in the middle? <laughs> I think I don't think that's a bad way of characterizing it. Um, look, we've had uh, you know very very good progress on energy prices and supply chains. Where we haven't seen it, so food prices are are moderating. And let me just say for uh, any of you listening, uh, I feel your pain when you go to the grocery. I, I do some cooking myself, and that's my my uh, my my sanity. But let me tell you, my stress level shopping has been off the charts recently when I look at egg prices or tinfoil prices. And sorry to crab, Greg, but I have the microphone. And if any of you from those industries, can you get the prices down? Diet pop, too. I'll, that's on behalf of my wife. In any event, what's, what's lingering uh, for the Fed and frustrating, house prices have declined, I believe, now five months in a row. Traditionally, those are correlated with uh, moderation in rental increases, and we've been waiting for that and haven't seen it. We see leading indicators of uh, rent from Zillow and other providers. They turned a few months ago, but we have not seen the shelter component turn. It, it actually went up in the most recent reading. The other one is the uh, core services that uh, the Fed let us know that they're watching. Those prices are also kind of stuck at about a 6% year over year pace. The quarterly changes are getting a little bit more moderate, but frankly, Greg, I don't think that's gonna be enough for the Fed to feel comfortable. Uh, first, I think that they don't trust their forward view of inflation after the transitory issues that they had in 2021. So they wanna be trebly sure that they're on top of these things. And secondly, it's the, it comes back to the labor markets, which they've highlighted on a number of occasions, that they're looking for a little bit of moderation there. And if we look at the labor markets collectively, including this morning's news on job openings, they've come off the boil a little bit, but I'd have to say that they're still, still hot. And until, and I know the Fed's not trying to put people out of work, even though some have accused them of that, but uh, the moderation they might've been hoping for is still, not here. So I can't say that they're going to be satisfied with the inflation outlook just yet. So what do you think they're going to decide after their two days of talks? So uh, I don't think this is controversial. We're calling for a quarter point. For me, it'll be far more interesting what kind of guidance they give. Um, I think that they will indicate that they are uh, open to a pause but that, that we should not be assuming that they're going to reverse course unless, unless something untoward happens, which is where the, what would we call that, a, 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 a dovish hike or, or something like that is, is kind of in the offing. But I don't think it'll be too dovish. I think uh, Jay Powell will continue to say that we've made progress, but the job's not done, and we're going to be monitoring prices in the period just ahead along with financial conditions. 
and of course, he'll give the state contingency language that we often see in the statement. Uh, the other thing I've noticed as we've gotten closer to the end of their journey, Greg, is that his scripting has been much tighter. And I know it's, uh, you're there at the press conferences, so you see it uh, up close. Uh, he's got his, his tabs in his notebook, and as a reporter asks a question, he's being very careful about the messaging, which I think we all appreciate. I, I want to just ask about a pause. Just You don't think that, that it would be a good idea to pause now, take a look to see how the second half is kind of shaking out? Um, so the argument there, which, which may be raised in the conversation, given the statements from some regional presidents, is that the accumulated impact of what's been done has not yet been fully felt. And, or, that the cumulative impact of what's been done is still working its way through the banking system and the, the risks there are still present. So why not wait? I do think the core of the committee is tortured. The, having worked there, the Fed is very aware of its history and tortured by its mistakes. And the two biggest mistakes any Fed official will tell you uh, that they've made in their history is not being easy enough during the Depression and not being tighter during the 1970s when they assumed job was done and then inflation sprinted to a new level and became more difficult to unearth. I think uh, that experience is informing their strategy today. And this idea the market has that the Fed is going to cut maybe two times by the end of the year. Uh, Ethan Harris of Bank of America told me he thought that the market really thinks the Fed is, the market thinks the Fed is going to rush to the rescue if there's a recession. And he thought that there was the lesson from the 70s is that the Fed isn't rushing this time, won't rush in. What's your sense of that? Uh, I agree with that characterization. Um, a mild recession is not something to be sought. But recessions are a natural part of business cycles, especially after we've been through this strange one. It might get some of the excesses out of the system. If you believe the Fed forecasts and we have a mild recession, but unemployment peaks out in the mid fours, if you had just woken up from a long nap and saw unemployment at four and a half, you would say that that is an outstanding result for the labor market. So I'm not sure that they would stand in the way of that kind of progression. Let's take some questions now from the audience. Um, oh, the longer term, there's a big issue. It's a very interesting issue. I wanted to know if you wanted to comment on it briefly. Do you think that the funds rate is going to get back to the zero lower bound or interest rates are going to settle at that where they were sort of before the pandemic, you know, where we couldn't, you know, 2% and below? So, uh, you know, ever is a long time. Yeah. Uh, uh, let me give you a couple of highlights. And it's a very good question. Again, a lot of us think that the neutral funds rate is two to two and a half. The level that equilibrates credit supply and demand is dependent on a lot of long-term factors, including demographics and productivity. This is the R-star concept for the questioner. Um, because our star has been shrinking, that means that we're going to spend more time close to the zero lower bound over time. There's no avoiding it. Is it imminent? Uh, I would certainly hope not. Is it something that we need to be cognizant of? Absolutely. 
Uh, we've spent a lot of time there since 2008, Greg. And I think understanding how the economy performs, how the banking system performs in environments like that is something we should all keep close at hand. Another questioner asks, uh, when will we get inflation back to the 2% target? Let me answer this way. So, uh, so often now we look at inflation on a year over year basis, which is a little bit backward looking. So we complement that with the last quarter annualized and and there you're already seeing numbers in the two and a half to three percent range. Uh, we think by the end of the year, the quarterly annualized numbers will be below three percent durably. Um, there's certainly I think the risks are still for me a little bit on the upside. But again, we, if we have some more banking stress, uh, that perception may change. Well, talk to me a little bit about the the companies, the pop, the diet pop uh, makers, and they're they ha they see the opportunity to raise prices. They're going to raise prices. How's that? How's that going to turn around? So one of the macro factors that doesn't get discussed enough is I have seen in both the NFIB survey of small businesses as well as surveys of large companies that pricing power is diminishing. When we had the pandemic reopening, Greg, and we had lots of excess saving, uh, there were a lot of folks that weren't as price conscious. You wanted that first big vacation or holiday and uh, you wanted it to make up for lost time. Well, now that some of that saving has dissipated, the risk of recession is there and inflation is high. Consumers are going back to what they do very naturally, which is being more price discriminating. And in categories where we've had excesses of inventory, certainly uh, consumers are getting to be better shoppers. So I'm not sure that there is unbridled uh, freedom for firms to raise prices. And in the case that you mentioned, uh, my wife switched to iced tea. True story. She switched to iced tea. She bought some cheapo tea bags and put them out on the porch and she's drinking sun tea instead of Diet Coke. So if anybody's on from Coca-Cola, you've got competition. Um, talk about the oil price, the price of oil. What's, what signal do you take from that um, in commodities? So uh, starting with oil, obviously the big news in the last uh, month or so has been the supply restrictions for OPEC and friends. So far, all that that has done is restored the oil price to where it was prior to the banking stress. I'm not sure that there are major geopolitical elements to this, although some have inferred them. Um, the idea for oil producers is to keep us uh, addicted and not looking for alternatives. And so they're, um, they're being very careful about that price setting. We still have level effects that are going to be beneficial for another six months. The price of regular gasoline is still coming down in the United States. And so I think those, that's still going to be uh, a nice tailwind for, for lower inflation. Other commodities, it's really very much a mixed bag. I don't talk about precious metals. Some people view them as an inflation hedge. We don't here at Northern Trust. Uh, grain prices, uh, you know, a lot depends on the spring weather as, as those markets are focused on planting season by now. There's another question from the audience about this uh, sort of will the Fed, if inflation gets, as you said, maybe around 3% by the end of the year, um, will the Fed maybe not say it out loud, but uh, sort of accept that and ease up a little bit and sort of let and not really drive the economy to 2%? 
I don't think they'll be happy with three. Here's a scenario, and you're a close watcher, so feel free to chime in. They redefined their inflation targeting regime to be an average over some period of time. And, uh, you know, at the time they adopted it, they had been running under for a long period of time. And so that was an inference that if it ran over for a little while, it would be fine. I don't think that they wished for 9%. But I think if you get inflation down durably to 2.5% or so, the comments from the Fed might be, uh, well, now we're going back to looking at things on average. And as we look forward, it might not be so bad. So the, the hard business of getting from two and a half to two might not be as urgent. But I don't think that three is something they're going to be happy with. They're aware of the difference between discounting at three over time or discounting at two. They're aware of the compounding effect of investment returns at those two levels. And over time, they're significant. And in addition, they've made this commitment that anchors expectations. Anytime you talk to a Fed official, it's almost like they have 2% tattooed on their their bicep, uh, because they feel that if they go soft, and certainly if they say so out loud, then the anchoring that they spent a long time achieving might be lost. Um, mortgage rates. We have a couple of questions on that line. How do you, where do you see the housing market and mortgage rates part of that? Yeah, look, uh, the spread between uh, home mortgage rates and 10-year treasuries, which is the traditional anchor, is still extraordinarily wide. And uh, even though mortgage demand is very modest, I chalk that up to some of the activity in the mortgage underwriting business uh, where liquidity, again, might uh, be playing a factor for originators. Uh, the risks of refinancing are a little bit different than they were a little while ago. The, uh, you know, the situation with the mortgage agencies comes into this. So I would like to think, and in our forecast, we have mortgage rates coming down slightly to more normal levels relative to market benchmarks, but it could take a while. Um, let me see another question here. Sorry, I'm just scrolling through here. Um, European headline inflation, a, a writer asks, seems to be sticky. Um, do you think that the U that's going to follow up in the U.S.? You know, goods goods prices have been coming down. Are they is is that good news over in, in your? Yeah, I don't think we'll have carryover from Europe. And having just been there last month, their inflation equation is much more difficult. They source food and energy from Eastern Europe. They also have uh, wages still going up. Tight labor markets, union settlements, a little bit more pricing power, the wage price spiral, you can see the contours of it. The Bank of England kind of thought it was done and is now leaning towards getting back in the game. And Madame Lagarde steps to the rostrum on Thursday morning American time, uh, she'll almost certainly hike uh, by a quarter. But, uh, you know, the inflation picture there seems a little bit stickier than it is here. They've got a much tougher job in trying to manage it down. So we're going to wrap up any couple of minutes. I just wanted to know if there's anything that we missed in our discussion or something that you would want to highlight. That, uh... No, not really. I think uh, the, the last thing I would mention to those watching is that whenever you get to an inflection point, the debates both inside the FOMC room and outside become much more interesting. Nose counting becomes more important. The news this week that uh, Lael Brainerd's spot may be filled internally with Philip Jefferson and then a, an outsider coming into the board may change that calculus. We've got a couple of new 
and very vocal bank presidents, including one here in Chicago. So that dynamic could be wonderful as always, Greg, wouldn't it, to be a fly on the wall in that room? That's a good question I didn't ask, because do you expect any dissents tomorrow when we get the statement? I don't. Uh, I think uh, every, everybody's lined up um, pretty well. It'll be the next meeting in June where things might get interesting. Fair enough. And before we go, I wanted to give you a chance to uh, give an elevator pitch for your favorite charity. Um, I think it's called Chicago Scholars. Is that it's very kind, uh, Greg. You know, we talk about things on a macro basis, but we all live in communities where those who are uh, somewhat less fortunate. Uh, we work, uh, Chicago Scholars works with uh, high school students from underprivileged communities who in some cases are the first uh, candidates for college. We try and get them organized for their college searches, get them acquainted with scholarships. Once they get to school, we try and get them the uh, student support, the networks that help them uh, succeed in college because many first-generation students struggle. And then we actually work with them on their job searches and getting settled into the labor market. So it's kind of a seven-year window that can be uh, very, very important for at-risk kids. If you talk to any one of the scholars, you, you just really are amazed by the untapped human capital that we have in our country, and we're just delighted to be able to help them. So thank you for allowing me to make the pitch. And that's, is there a website or anything? Just Chicago Scholars? Like ChicagoScholars.org. Yeah, great. Um, well, that's all the time we have. And I want to thank you again, Carl. I know that um, everybody, I got to share your your insight that I've got, come to rely on. It's good to have it spread out so that I have other people experience it. So thank you for your time. Um, that's all That's all the time we have, folks. Um, tomorrow, Market Watch, um, we have a, a, we're going to talk about real estate. Our, fa our great real estate reporter, Arthi Swamina. Arthi Swaminathan is going to talk to Brown Harris Stevens, CEO, Bess Friedman. And uh, they're going to discuss the uh, housing market, which is showing some signs of green shoots, but is still being squeezed. And so we're going to look for some bright spots there. So thank you, everyone. And I uh, stay tuned tomorrow for the Fed decision. We'll have uh, many stories up after the decision and the press conference. Hopefully we can hear from uh, Chairman Powell. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.